Today's topic is going to be about what you can do in your offers to make them stronger and easier to select when you're in a multiple offer situation. Agent Power Huddle is a daily jumpstart, giving you all the tools you need to create an amazing real estate career. Led by top experts in the field, you'll learn how to sell more houses in less time while creating the life you want. Welcome to the Agent Power Huddle. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good morning, everyone. Excuse me. My name is Ed Lane. I am a uh, managing broker out of Seattle, Washington. I've been in the industry for 36 years now. I know I look like I'm in my early 20s, but uh, I started a long time ago. So today we're going to talk about uh, writing winning offers in 2023. Uh, I don't know about where you are. Let me get this so it looks right. Um, what market you might be in, but um, we started to see a shift in late January uh, back to behaving more like a seller's market, right? So if we think of it like this, in May of last year, we went from a a seller's market to a market that behaved like a buyer's market. And that's when rates went up 200 basis points, right? Well, in late January of this year, it seems to have shifted back. So Uh, Ask yourself if you're starting to see more offer review dates, more multiple offer situations, more escalator clauses, and things of that nature. So today's topic is going to be about what you can do in your offers to make them stronger and easier to select when you're in a multiple offer situation. So hopefully this is information that will be useful. We're going to be using... Um, phrases and references to uh, contract language from here in Washington. So I have to apologize. I know this audience obviously covers a lot more of the U.S. than just Washington, but think about uh, which forms would apply in your market and think about if there's language in your contracts that uh, could be altered just to make your offer stronger and make your offer stand out. So with that as a disclaimer, I'm gonna go ahead and dive in uh, to the contents here, if my computer will cooperate. So Form 21 is just the purchase and sale agreement. So let me just comment on kind of the overall structure. Hopefully in your state, it's similar. You have a purchase and sale agreement and then you attach addenda to that purchase and sale in order to add contingencies, right? So inspection, financing, et cetera. So uh, ignore the Form 21 part of it. But the first thing I would ask you is, do you use the expiration date of your offer as a weapon or as an added inducement to incite behavior on the other side, right? A lot of people uh, just check a box, right? Or they just say, well, I'm going to make it expire. In our contract, what that means is it's going to expire. uh, Let's say I pick tomorrow. It's going to expire at 9 p.m. tomorrow. Well, I might want to put more pressure on the seller to respond sooner, right? So one of the things I always train the brokers on my team is don't just nonchalant the expiration. Use it as a tool to help you achieve your goal, which is getting your offer accepted. The other thing I tell them is, you know, we 
you'll see at the end, we're going to talk about how to talk to listing brokers in order to glean as much information as you can. Well, one of the questions is, how much time do you need to respond, right? And so we want to be accommodating, but not to the detriment of our client, right? And there's a really simple trick you can use, which is, hey, listing broker, how much time do you need, right? And if they say, you know, my client's traveling, they're in New York right now, can you give me a couple days? Say okie dokie in the conversation, but then write it shorter anyway, and then blame your client, right? So you can say, yeah, no problem, I can do that. And then when I submit the offer with an expiration of tomorrow at noon, I just say, hey, I know you wanted me to give you all the way till the following day, but my client's been burnt so many times. We just can't do that. He wouldn't let me do that. So hopefully tomorrow at noon gives you enough time. I don't say this to the agent, but guess what? They have the internet in New York, right? Whatever the situation is, nobody needs multiple days, right? The only time you need multiple days is if, if it's an estate and there's a number of heirs that all have to be consulted, right? So anyway, just be planful. That's the message. Be planful about when you're going to make it expire and don't let the other party use your offer to lever up other bidders, right? Because if that happens, you don't win, right? Someone else goes higher than you to beat you, you're now out. The appliance can also can be another lever, right? Be very planful about which appliances you ask for. You know, there's a kind of a reconciliation that has to happen when you go into the listing. Are they including all the appliances or did they leave out the washer and dryer? You want to just recognize when you are asking for something that isn't in the listing because a lot of agents are just lazy, right? And they click all the boxes and they go, yeah, well, we saw a washer and dryer, so we asked for it. If they were left out of the listing, there was a reason they were left out of the listing. And in a multiple offer situation, do you really want to lose the house over a washer and a dryer? Of course not, right? So just be very considerate of that and know when you're asking for something more than the seller was prepared to uh, let go of, right? We also be thinking about the three degrees of earnest money, right? Some agents have never even considered making earnest money non-refundable or even more aggressive, non-refundable and released to the seller, right? So the three degrees are no special accommodation, just plain old, we're gonna put the earnest money in escrow within X days. The second degree is we're going to also make it non-refundable. And the third degree is we're also going to release it immediately to the seller. Just make sure that you don't immediately release it and not make it non-refundable. Because once it's released, you ain't getting it back, right? So you just want to be thinking of that and be thoughtful about the structure. And I should qualify all this with, we're going to talk about a number of areas where you can be more aggressive and take on more risk, but it's not your risk, right? It's your clients. So it's all of this has to be preceded with a conversation with the customer and say, are you comfortable making your earnest money non-refundable? Are you comfortable releasing it to the seller? I'll tell you a quick anecdote or a quick story. I had a, a $4 million listing last year that we got an immediate 
four and a quarter million dollar offer that waived everything, had a $200,000 earnest money that was non-refundable and released to the seller. So we accepted it. That buyer then later terminated and bailed. And the agent called me to say, hey, you know, with this was this was all going down in May of last year. So you know why they terminated, right? There was anxiety over the fluctuating market. And the agent said, hey, uh, my clients need to, to get out of this deal. They're worried about losing their jobs. And I said, worried? Like they haven't been fired? No. Well, I can think of 200,000 reasons why they should reconsider pulling the plug on this transaction. And he goes, yeah, about that. Do you think your client would give it back? And I started laughing. And I wasn't trying to be rude. It was just a reaction, right? Like, you're joking, right? My client is a real estate attorney. So I said to the guy, what part of attorney did you not understand? Of course, he's not going to give you back the 200000 So that client bailed and lost their money. So anyway, when you're representing a buyer, be considerate of that, right? You can make your offer stronger, but make darn sure that they intend to complete the transaction. What about a post-closing rent back? That, to me, that's 100% driven by your customer, your buyer. Are they in a position to allow the seller to stay after, right? And if so, are they going to charge them rent? You know, you could do it for free. That would be even more attractive. But maybe you want to uh, have your client's mortgage interest covered, right? Because there is... Uh, economic impact on the buyer of letting the seller remain if they're a financed buyer. So you just want to be thinking through that and be as, as aggressive as your client is comfortable being. On our contracts, we actually have a clause that says assessments levied before but due after closing shall be paid by, and then you check a box, buyer or seller. Well, in some instances, that is zero risk to the buyer to say that the buyer is going to assume those because some properties don't have any assessments and there's no risk of an assessment, right? In, in Washington state, we have a lot of detached single families that are in developments. Well, a development could levy an assessment. So you wanna be thoughtful of that. Another thing that comes up is um, when you build a new build, and connect to the sewer, there's a $25,000 connection fee charged by the county. And the builders pass that on to the buyer and they amortize it over 15 years. So what I tell my team is, if you're representing a buyer on either a condo or a detached single family that's younger than 15 years old, do you want to research development? Go ahead and check the box of buyer to assume because it's one more positive thing that you can list in your offer as a benefit to the seller, right? Oh, I think my internet got fuzzy there. Sorry about that if you missed any of that. So 22A is the financing contingency. So just be thinking of your financing contingency. Our contingency has uh, language in it that can cause the buyer to accidentally waive their financing. So chime in if any of you guys have language like this in your financing contingencies. What it says is 
If if I submit an offer that says my buyer's going conventional with 20% down, if they change loan programs at any time, or if they change lenders and it, after the application window closes, and they don't get the seller's prior written consent, their financing is now waived. Do you guys have anything like that in your contracts? Sam, Brian? No? Okay. So you don't have to worry about that. That's good. This is a, it's a funny little nuance and a lot of agents never read these forms. So I always tell people, you should never ask somebody to sign something that you yourself have not read, right? So just make sure you're, you're familiar with and reading through these, these clauses very carefully. Paragraph two is all about whether the financing contingency will survive closing or will expire. So in our market, there's ways to make it expire, which would be more aggressive than if you let it survive closing, right? So that's another plus. And I'll, I'll kind of pause just long enough to preface this with, we submit offers with a templated cover email and the cover email is designed to complement the listing broker. Because if I compliment the listing broker, the, the email is more likely to stick with the offer when it gets presented because it makes the listing broker look good, right? So if you start out with, hey, man, you did such an awesome job. The marketing on this house is top notch, you know, blah, blah, blah. Here's my offer. And then we list bullet points, all of the positive things about our offer. Waived inspection, wave this, you know, shorten that, et cetera. I would like that list to be as long as possible. So this is another example of a bullet point that I could add to my cover email and say, hey, we use the more aggressive financing clause so that this, this financing expires and you don't have to lift a finger to make it go away, right? So just be thinking about what are the things that you can do in your offers to make them, uh, absolutely, Sam, I'll put the uh, the cover email into, or Autumn, actually, we'll put it in the Agent Collective website, the Agent Power Huddle site. Great question, glad you asked. Um, when we make that list, we just want to have as many bullets as we can, right? Because as they read through it, they're more likely to start forming an opinion of, man, a, this guy or gal is really good at this, and B, they've written a really or written a really strong offer. And how many times have you been in a situation with a seller in a multiple offer situation where the seller's like, I, I think I know which one I like the most, but what do you think, Ed? Right? Well, if I can drive a perception in in the listing broker that I'm really good at what I do and really thorough and professional, they're more likely to advocate for me right? So that's what we're aiming for. Does it always work? No. In the end, if, if some lunatic buyer writes to the moon, right, we're going to lose. But I can tell you, uh, we had 36 closings last year where we were not the highest bidder. So 36 times that we could track, right? There was probably more. We just couldn't get the information out of the listing broker. But 36 times where by doing all these other things, we didn't have to be the highest bidder. Does that make sense? So the 
two A three and two B three. Those are sub chapters of those same two clauses that say continues and survives closing or expires. And all they say, and I'll I'll come to you, Sam, after I finish this point. All they say is, if I waive financing, I either will or will not also waive low appraisal protection. So in your state, you may have language that says, hey, if the appraisal comes in low, the seller agrees to renegotiate or the seller doesn't have to do anything. You know, in our state forms, the seller has four options. And all we're saying is, hey, if I waive the financing, I will also waive or I will not also waive the low appraisal protection. And the way I describe it to my buyers is, we're not going to waive financing. Like I don't accidentally waive it, and I'm certainly not going to waive it unless compelled to. So we can mark will and then not worry about it because we're never going to waive financing, right? But you have to you have to kind of weigh the the contract. If I'm writing it with a shorter contingency, we might be in a position where we have to waive, and I might want to mark will not. So I know it's kind of hard to imagine without the form on the screen, but hopefully because my forms really don't matter to you guys, the concepts are similar. Sam, did you have a question? Yeah, this is, uh, you said the, don't waive the client financing. Without waiving the loan contingencies and the appraisal, we, will not, we are not getting any offer accepted. So how do you address that issue? So. Uh, what state, what city or state are you in? Uh, I'm in California. What, Southern Cal or? Uh, no, no, San Jose. Oh, okay. I grew up in Redwood City, so I know exactly where you are. Um, yeah, I mean, you have to read the room, right? You have to evaluate in this market, am I competing with 15 offers or did I find a, a seller who maybe has been on the market for 14 days and I, I can be less aggressive? There are definitely going to be occasions where you have to waive everything, right? Yeah. yeah. I get it. I get it for sure. The the interesting thing is I did this analysis about four weeks ago here in I'm in Seattle, which is King County. And I looked at all the active listings in King County, and there were 2,000 of them. No, I'm sorry, 1,600 of them. And 75%, 1,200 of them have been on the market for over 14 days. So those are sellers where you don't have to waive anything, right? Or, or you know, you want to write a strong offer so it, it gets accepted, but you don't have to expose yourself to all that risk. Now, there are degrees of waiving. So Sam, my best advice to you is to kind of evaluate and, and we'll finish today's conversation with how I talk to listing brokers in order to get as much info as I can. But once you get that info, then you got to decide and advise your client on, okay, this one's a hot one. We're going to have to be aggressive. So in, in our forms, I can waive financing and low appraisal. And then we have a different form that we use as evidence of how I'm going to pay for it because I'm still financing. I'm just not making it contingent on the financing. So, so we would do that if, if it was a house my client really, really wanted. And we knew there was going to be 10 or more offers, right? Yeah. So 
I, I wish I had a magic wand for you, Sam, but there's going to be some houses you've seen them, I'm sure, right? Where they're just white hot and you got to be as aggressive as you can. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And in the end, right, it's your client's decision anyway. So, so we always give the best advice we can, but it's their money, right? And it, and it may depend on how much they love that house. So, all right. Yeah. Yeah, this further on that one actually, uh, my observation. If we tell that uh, this year, this may not apprise or you may have the loan issue with the, if you go with this house and the client is not be happy and they will try to go to a different agent who accepts and does. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the risk of, of waiving everything and then still having the appraiser create a problem for you. So, you know, it, part of that discussion needs to be, well, let, let me do a CMA so we can try and establish how big is the risk of a low appraisal. And then it, depending on how low, how much money do you have? Right. I mean, there is added benefit for a buyer who's putting 30% down versus a buyer who's only putting five, you know, or 10 because they have more bandwidth to absorb that low appraisal. So each one of them is a case by case circumstance and you just have to evaluate the risk and then communicate that to your client because it's not you taking the risk, right? It's them. So when somebody waves everything and absorbs low appraisal and then appraisal comes in so low they can't afford it, their choices are find a rich relative or lose your earnest money, right? But you want to make sure they knew that going in. That's the key. The, the levels of compromise for low appraisal, that really comes down to, do, do you have in, in San Jose or, or um, Brian, you're in Delaware, do you guys have a appraisal gap clause that you can proactively include in your offers? Yes, we have. Okay. So, so to me, that's a layer of compromise, right? If I come in, with an offer where I'm not waiving low appraisal, but I am saying, if it's low, we'll cover the first 50 grand or whatever your client is comfortable covering, that could make your offer stand out, right? So that's a clause that uh, I think we're gonna start seeing more and more of as the market continues to get competitive or like poor Sam, it already is competitive. I talked to an agent yesterday out of Dallas and he said, I got, five to seven offers on all of my listings in the last week. So I said, well, guess what? You're officially heated back up, right? So that's why these skills are useful. So form 35 in our market is the inspection clause. Now, a lot of people think there's two layers of, of compromise for inspections. You either have one or you don't. But we like to teach that there's actually six different layers of inspection risk we'll call it right so first thing you got to evaluate is how long of a inspection contingency you should have now this could be uh specific to washington state but i'll i'll bring it up in case it happens in your market in our contracts it says under excuse me under computation of time it says contingencies of five days or less shall exclude weekends and contingencies over that will include weekends. So what the point I make when I'm talking to agents about this 
number is if you get an offer with a six day contingency, that just tells you that agent is inexperienced because a six day contingency is actually shorter than a five day. Does that make sense? Because of the inclusion or exclusion of the weekend. So what we do is we use five days pretty much all the time, shorter if it's a competitive market and we're trying to communicate to the listing broker, hey, you're going to know right away how quickly or, or what the results are, right? So be planful of that. Have a, have a strategy that you're going to invoke. If you're going to have an inspection contingency, be planful about how long of a contingency you need and try and err on the shorter side if you can. The other thing is you can add language to make it less burdensome on the seller, right? So let's talk about the six degrees of inspecting. The, the easiest degree and the least aggressive degree is nothing. Like, like you have an inspection contingency and you don't do anything unusual to modify it. That's the least aggressive you could be. So in a multiple offer situation, you probably should never do that unless your client is just super apprehensive, right? We've all been there where you have a client who on their first offer, they don't waive anything and they, they don't write above asking. They don't do anything unusual and they get their teeth kicked in, right? They come in seventh place out of seven. And then they start getting more aggressive, right? And when they finally win, it's probably because they started waiving everything and, and writing stronger offers. So first level of inspecting is, is the least aggressive. Next up is pre-inspecting, right? That's, that's more aggressive than not pre-inspecting, but it's, you know, still gives your client all the feedback they need. The, the downside of pre-inspecting is your client might say, now that they have the results, hey, I'd like the seller to fix X, right? So can, can be a benefit. Sometimes it works against you. You can also add language to the contract that says the inspection is for informational purposes only and buyer agrees to only raise an issue if it's above X dollars. Now. I'm appealing to the arrogance of the seller, right? Because think about your, your own house, right? If I sat here, I'm, I'm in my debt. Uh, or more than $4,000 to fix, right? Oh, my internet's fluctuating again. I apologize. But, uh, most sellers don't think anything's wrong with their house, right? So when you put language that says, hey, man, we agree not to raise any issue unless it's more expensive than X, they're going to view that as waiving practically, right? So then all you have to do is talk to your client about what should X be. And I'd say that the two most common numbers I use is either $2,500 or $4,000. And the reason I use those numbers is if my client is apprehensive about the furnace, for example, I'll use 2,500 because a new furnace would be more than that. If my client is accepting of the condition of the home, I'll use 4,000 because then that just protects me from failed roofs and failed foundations, right? Because a furnace I can get for less than 4,000. 
water heater as well, right? So it's really just do I do I want to include furnace and water heater, or do I want to exclude those but include roof and foundation, right? The next level is is very similar to the previous one, with one exception, and that is that it it has language that proactively, in fact, uh, Sam. I'll send this with that cover email. Let me make a note. Um, it has language that proactively waives the inspection. So it's kind of similar in that it says, um, we are looking for uh, material defects and a material defect shall be defined as any single item that costs more than X dollars to repair. And if none, of those material defects are found by a licensed inspector, then the inspection shall be deemed waived. So it's sort of proactively saying, we're gonna identify expensive things and if there aren't any, this is waived, right? So that's more aggressive than number three. Number five is what I call the sneaky inspection. So in our state, we have a seller disclosure that gives the buyer three days to revoke their offer. And I know all 50 states have a seller disclosure. I don't know if all 50 states have this right to revoke window, but our state does. And we can do an inspection during that three-day right to revoke. It's sneaky because we've waived inspection in our offer in order to get it accepted, but then went ahead and did one anyway. So some people might consider that unethical. I'm not going to opine on my opinion, right? Or share my opinion, but but it is an option. It's easier to do if the home is vacant than if it's occupied. And I I did this training recently and one of the agents said, what if the listing broker refuses to give you access, right? And my answer was, well, most won't because you frame it as, hey, listing broker, my client would like to come by and uh, measure for furniture is that okay and then you just bring your inspector with you but if they still refuse then you have to go to your client and say look we can still do an inspection later but we're not going to be able to do it in the three-day window so do you want to terminate now or do you want to take that risk because again it's not your risk to take does that make sense all right we're getting close to the uh the bottom of the hour. So I'm going to speed up a little bit. Uh, the most aggressive is you just waive inspection and take it as is, right? Form 17, you can waive the right to revoke. So you can waive that three-day window, but obviously you don't do that if you're going to do the sneaky inspection, right? Offer review dates. We actually can do a two-step, right? Are you guys seeing offer review dates in your markets? If you are, you can still submit early and aggressively, but make it expire early, right? You just uh, make it as strong as you can, wave as much as you can, and you're trying to avoid the competition. The thing I would caution you or the thing you need to say to your client is, hey, we're gonna do this. We have to recognize that our job is to persuade the seller to abandon a plan that they've put in place, right? When they have an offer review date, it's because their agent convinced them, if we do this, we can get multiple offers. Well, we gotta 
give them an offer that's strong enough to convince them that they're not better off waiting, right? So be aggressive. And then if it doesn't work, then add an escalator clause and, and be aggressive on the review date and see if you win that day. But use an escalator clause in that second offer, but not in the first offer, right? Because in the first offer, we're hoping there aren't any other offers. And the only way an escalator gets triggered is if there are, right? Contingencies to leave out. So in our market, we have a title contingency that some firms require. I think that's redundant because the purchase and sale already says the seller will deliver marketable title. So just look at your forms and, and look at your brokerage and see if you need it or don't. Uh, never use a six or a seven day contingency. Again, that's because five days or less excludes weekends. And we also have a neighborhood review clause, which is this sort of milk toast bland. Hey, I get a certain amount of time just to walk around the neighborhood and decide if I like it. Don't do that. Like it's just a, it's most of the time agents use it in, re, in conjunction with an inspection. So it's redundant and it just communicates to the seller that you're, you're not as interested as you, you want them to think you are right. You also should be considerate of whether the seller or your lender can help out, right? Buy down points, discounts, closing cost credits. What about the seller's loan being assumable? That could become a factor, right? You just want to have this like exhaustive, no stone unturned approach to this. So if you're a listing broker, ask your, your seller, is your mortgage assumable? Because we should market that. All right, we'll rattle through this really quickly and, and then we'll open up to questions, okay? Oops. So this is the sequence of events and script that we use. If you wanna shoot a picture of the screen, you're welcome to. But we call the listing broker twice. After we've shown it, when our client has said, yeah, I think I might wanna write an offer. And then again, before we submit the offer, if we end up writing it. When we make that those phone calls, our agenda for the call number one and the single most important is to build rapport by the time we get off that phone call i want you to love me and to be hoping that i write a strong enough offer that i will win so that we can work together right so how do you do that compliment the crap out of them make them laugh right a listing broker's most favorite topic of discussion is themselves so stroke their egos make them laugh by the end of that, they'll like you, right? So build rapport. Number two, find out the terms besides price that would benefit the seller. That includes expiration date of the offer, but it's possession date. It's, you know, a lot of times when I ask that question, they just say, you know, as high as possible and as few contingencies as possible. And I'm like, okay, what else? Like how much time do you need to review? That sort of thing. Uh, find out if they have any other offers. And if they do, find out how high you need to be to win. And there's an art to that. Uh, I have a YouTube channel. You're welcome to go check out a video I made about how to get that information out of the listing broker. Um, if they don't have any offers, ask them how committed they are to the review date. Maybe a two-step is appropriate, right? And then find out what time the listing agent is meeting the seller. We always want to submit our offers one hour before that meeting and no more. If we submit it longer than that ahead of time, 
they can use our offer to leverage up other bidders. And remember what I said earlier, if they do that, we never win in those scenarios, right? Then package your offer like a pro, right? Use the cover email template, which I will send out to uh, make sure you guys get a copy of that. Stack your offer in alphanumeric order and fill in every blank. Even if you're gonna use the default values, still fill it in because blanks communicate to the listing broker that you're not thorough and you're unprofessional. So don't do that, right? And then if there's a review date, submit it an hour before. That's it. Ran a couple of minutes long. Hopefully it was worth it. Does anyone have any questions? I feel like I talked a lot. If not, I will wish you guys all a wonderful day and hopefully you got some good info today. Thank you, it was very information. Thank you, Sam, I appreciate your participation. Nice to meet you all, have a great day. That was great, Ed, thanks. Thanks, Brian. If you'd like more information or to get connected to the Agent Power Huddle, join our free Facebook group. This call was designed for the agents in our EXP organization, but open to any agent from any brokerage. If you're a guest and you're interested in learning more about EXP or our specific resources within the Agent Collective, reach out to the person who invited you to this call to get more info. Produced by the Agent Collective Media Network.